Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On this edition of The Literary Life, we present Lauren Groff at Books and Books in Coral Gables for a live event celebrating the publication of The Vaster Wilds, her newest novel. Already a bestseller, it's garnering reviews that are stunning in their praise. This from the Boston Globe. Glorious. Lauren Groff imagines a natural world where humans adapt to its contours rather than conquer them. We don't need a hero's tale of domination and plunder to fix the environment. We need more stories of how becoming part of the natural systems that surround us may help us survive. The Vaster Wilds is a terrific addition to a developing canon of our continued existence. Lauren is extraordinary. She's a three-time National Book Award finalist and the New York Times bestselling author of the novels The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, Fates and Furies, and Matrix and the short story collections Delicate Edible Birds and Florida. She's won the Story Prize and has been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her work regularly appears in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and elsewhere, and she was named one of Granta's 2017 Best Young American Novelists. And now, without further ado, let's give a warm Miami welcome to Lauren Groff. so magnificent to be in this place during Banned Books Week, which I write. Oh. Um, um, I didn't bring my own books. I'm going to read from this one back here. I have uh, just a carry-on for 16 days. Uh, I, I'm feeling very proud of myself, actually, but I, I didn't have room for my own book. Uh, so I'm just going to read a little bit and then talk to you about where this book came from, and then we'll have a Q&A because that's the part everyone likes anyway. Okay. From the beginning. <clears throat> oh, also, there's space over here. There are six seats over here. If you want to come before I even start, yeah, come on over. Come on over. We're all friends. Okay. The moon hid itself behind the clouds. The wind spat in icy snow at angles. In the tall black wall of the palisade through a slit too seeming thin for human passage, the girl climbed into the great and terrible wilderness. Over her face she wore a hood drawn low, and she was slight, both bony and childish small, but the famine had stripped her down yet starker to root and string and fiber and sinew. Even so starved and blinded by the dark, she was quick. She scrabbled upright, stumbled with her first step, nearly fell, but caught herself and began to run, 
going fast over the frozen ruts of the field and all the stalks of dead corn that had come up in the summer, already sooty and fruitless and stunted with blight. Swifter girls, she told herself, and in their fear and anguish her legs moved yet faster. These good boots the girl had stolen off the son of a gentleman, a stripling half her age but of equal size, who had died of the smallpox the night before, the rash a rust spreading over the starved bones. These leather gloves and the thick cloak the girl had stolen off her own mistress. She banished the thought of the woman still weeping upon her knees on the frozen ground in the courtyard inside that hellish place. With each step she drew away, everything there loosened its grip on the girl. Yet there was a strange gleam upon the dark ground of the field ahead, and as she moved she saw it was the undershirt of the soldier who a fortnight earlier had been caught worming his body slow from the horrors of the fort and toward the different horrors of the forest. He had made it halfway to the trees when, in silence, a shadow that had lain upon the ground grew denser, grew upward, came clear at last as the fearsomest of the men of this country, the warrior two heads taller than the men of the fort, who made himself yet more terrible by wearing upon his shoulders outstretched a broad dark mantle of turkey feathers. He had lifted with one hand the creeping fearful soldier by his hair and had, with a knife, cut a long, wet, red mouth into the man's throat. Then he dropped him to spill his heart's blood into the frozen earth, and there the dead man lay explayed ignoble. All this time he had lain unburied, for the soldiers of the settlement had become too weak and too cowardly in their hunger to fetch the body back. She had passed the dead man, and his reek had drawn itself out of her nostrils, and she was nearly to the woods when she stumbled again, for the thought of these two men gave rise to thoughts of other men who lurked, perhaps, in the woods, men out there hidden and awaiting her. And now, as she peered before her into the dark of the forest, she saw a man crouching in ambush, an ever deeper blacker shadow of each tree, perhaps a man with a knife or an axe or an arrow and cold murder in his eye. She stopped her running for a breath, but she had no choice. She took her courage up again and she ran on. And as she ran, each imagined man, in passing, revealed himself to be mere shadow again. Okay, so that's the reading. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Um, oh, thanks. Uh, so this book has been on slow boil for a really long time, for about 10 years now. Um, and what happened, all my books are, are, tend to be slow boil books. Um, but about 10 years ago, I was in a doctor's office. And you know how you don't want to touch anything in a doctor's office because you don't want to get diseases? Um, all of the magazines were disgusting, except for Smithsonian Magazine, which was untouched. Um, so I touched it, and I read it. And there's this incredible article in it about Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement in the New World uh, in Virginia. And I did not know this up until this point, but the winter of 1609 and 1610, when a few uh, flotillas of boats had already landed, was horrific. It was called the starving time because people were starving. Uh, over 80% of people who arrived as colonists died. Uh, and they died of things of like, like bloody fluxes, whatever that is. They died of like poxes and malaria and brackish water and violence and scalping and eating each other. Um, and so it was a really horrific time and complicated too by the fact that England of that time was 
profoundly class-based, as it is still, as America is still. But it was so profoundly class-based that the gentlemen or the gentle people refused to work, which did not go over well. Um, so it's this very strange time in American history. And in the article, as I was reading along, I found this one astonishing fact, which was they had very recently disinterred the bones of a 14-year-old girl who'd come over and they saw evidence on these bones of cannibalism. And I thought, oh my God, right? This is amazing. What are we going to do with this? Um, but I didn't know what to do with it. And so I kind of took it and bodily threw it into the spinning galaxy of ideas that I don't know what to do with behind my head that's always there. And every time I read a book, another little factoid goes in there. And eventually, one day, they, they collide with other facts and they become something. Um, and so what happened was, eventually, after a few years, I reread Robinson Crusoe, right? Which is an amazing book. If you haven't read it, it is weird and funny and strange um, and kind of, uh, there are times that make you want to cry. And it's a really incredible cross-section of the, the, the English brain of the time that it was written. Um, because what does Robinson Crusoe do when he gets to his desert island? but he starts to work really, really hard, right? Like hard work equals godliness to, to these people. And as soon as he encounters another human being, he turns that person into an enslaved person, which is very English of the time, right? And so, and so I thought, oh my gosh, this is an amazing text because it's telling me who the people were that, uh, that Defoe was talking about. Um, so I, uh, so I thought, oh gosh, well, maybe my Jamestown idea has another part to it. Maybe I could write a female Robinson Crusoe. And then I remembered, and this is the third, uh, part of the book that actually came together and exploded into an idea. I remembered captivity narratives, which if you don't remember ninth grade history, like don't worry about it, my, my 10th grader doesn't either. Um, but captivity narratives are these astonishing American texts. I, know they're, I mean, they're from all over the world, but the ones that we really study tend to be American. And they are the, from the eruption of uh, colonization and um, the native peoples. So what happens in captivity narratives is that it's the 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 relation that's the, the story of um, someone on the frontier being seized um, by the Native Americans, held for a time, and then ransomed back. And usually these texts were as told to to religious people. So Increase Mother, um, a very famous early preacher, and Cotton Mather, his son, who uh, was responsible for the Salem witch trials, loved to collect these, these captivity narratives and publish them. The most famous one that we know of is Mary Rawlinson's captivity narrative, which is actually an amazing text just to read. Uh, harrowing, interesting. It's all used for propaganda purposes. So the propaganda purposes for, of captivity narratives was uh, in order to justify and um, make seem godly, in a way, the, the expansion uh, of the Europeans into um, North America. Uh, it, was, it was a way of um, saying, look at these poor, primarily white women who have been captured. Look at how evil the people are who capture them. So, uh, so they're really problematic. 
right, as texts. They're really complicated and um, they really do uh, talk, uh, tell a lot about uh, the mindset of the people at the time uh, who are writing them. Um, and I thought, well, after I wanted to write a female Robinson Crusoe, wouldn't it be great if I was also writing a captivity narrative? But the captivity narrative is not the one that you are expecting, right? It's not sort of the, the woman being taken in by the Native Americans, dance with those wolves, all that, all that stuff. All right? It is instead, um, maybe the captivity that she's suffering under is that of her original culture, right? Maybe that is the thing that is seizing or holding her and keeping her down. And so... Um, my vision for the book when I finally had one, and it took a long time to get one, was that it would be, um, and this is for the writers in the room like who really love when people talk about structure. I really love it too. It's, um, it's chiastic in shape, right? So it's, it's in the shape of an X, a Greek X, so chi. Um, and as my protagonist is in the woods running and trying to survive and her, her body in the material world is disintegrating because I don't know about you, but I would last for maybe a day uh, in, the, in the wilderness. Um, you know, just the blisters alone, right? I would never heard. Um, but as she's sort of disintegrating over the scope of the book, her soul is, is rising. It's anagogical, right? It, it's going upward towards something more interesting and more spiritual. She's going away from the, the preconceived ideas that she has been fed all of her life. She's going away from the, the religion and its really tight, um, uh, almost constrictive role on her. She's breaking those and she's um, coming into a different and more interesting understanding of the world. And now I have to say, halfway through writing, the, probably the fifth, sixth draft of this book, I remember the transcendentalists, who are my favorite, right? Like, oh my God, right? Thoreau. Holy shit. Um, and I remembered this amazing essay by Emerson called Nature. And in Nature, it's very famous. Um, it's so worth reading if you haven't read it recently. Uh, but there's this incredible part where Emerson's talking about being out in nature and what nature does to his soul. And he's wandering around. And he starts to get into this very rhapsodic, um, very beautiful unbelievably um, um, extended metaphor where suddenly he is a transparent eyeball, right? And the, he calls himself that. It's amazing. And and as as a transparent eyeball, he's able to become God in a certain way. He, he feels a sense of God and God feels him. And I said, oh my God, right? That, that little part of Emerson is what I've been working toward this entire time. Um, so that is where the book came from. Um, but of course, uh, I have a whole other like series of things I could tell you. Of. I will, okay, I'll do it really quickly. Um, <laughs> um, so I started this as soon as I realized that it was a book. Uh, and I was writing it for a while. And I had this incredible fellowship uh, at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies at Harvard. It's like the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, because they didn't require any teaching, anything at all. All I had to do was give one lecture and then listen to geniuses in physics, in sculpture, in video making, in um, history, in all sorts of academic fields, give talks about things that they love deeply and are interested in, are really incredible at. So, like, 
there were probably for some reason our year had like four physicists working on black holes and at one point I was like I'm writing a novel about black holes this is amazing like I don't know how to do it because people can't be near black holes but um, I got very excited about what people were talking about and um, in the middle oh I also have to say too I'm very grateful to them because they gave me two uh, Harvard undergraduate researchers which I don't know if you've ever met a Harvard undergraduate it's like a, a so type A. Um, it's like, like it puts me to shame. Um, it was so fun, right? I just be like, here's a list of things to find, and they come back with like boxes. It was so great. Um, so in the middle of this, my friend Dr. Katie Bookish, who's at Notre Dame now, gets up and she's like eight months pregnant, so radiant. She she looks like like a saint, right? And she's talking about her discipline, which is medieval nuns. And um, and I thought, you know, going in, I'm like, oh, I got to go to Katie's talk, right? It's cold. It's dark. Oh, my God. Um, and I'm sitting in the audience, and I'm weeping because she's so passionate about medieval nuns, about the liturgy, about um, how much she loves these women who've been dead for a thousand years. Right? She truly loves them very deeply. And I'm sitting in the audience, and I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, this is incredible. And I had this, like, blast, right, in the galaxy, in the floating galaxy of ideas. Um, down came um, something that I'd actually tried to work on at one point. It, it wasn't ready. Uh, it was about um, the, the first published poet in the, the French language, Marie de France, um, whom I had studied in college. I'd taken a, a whole year of Ancien Français, where I had translated from Ancien Français into, into a, a standard English, a bunch of texts. And one of them was this incredible incredible book by Marie de France called The Lay, which is basically short stories in poetic form, very old stories um, that are really bonkers. I mean, it's all about courtly love, but there's also, uh, you know, like a queer werewolf story. There's like like an enchanted boat story. It's, it's really amazing. And I thought, oh, right, because I had like this secular vision of a book that came down and was so urgent that I had to write it. And so that was Matrix, which actually my, my last book. Oh, hey, look at that. But so, so, but, at the, you know, I'm ambitious, which um, some people, when, especially when applied to women, mean um, a, a negative thing. But I always think it's great. Um, I was doing this um, uh, matrix at the same time as Vaster, and I realized what I was doing was building like a super text. Um, so I had this idea that matrix would be the first in, in, installment of a triptych. It's not a trilogy, but it's a triptych where I'm trying to see how we got to where we are now in the Anthropocene, right? How we became the people who are driving um, the Earth into death. <laughs> And um, and so the first one, the first installation is in the Middle Ages and, um, you know, the 12th century. The next one is Elizabethan era, um, the New World, 1609. So that's this one. And then the third one uh, is set now. And it's um, it's making me cry every night. Uh, so, you know, it's like a succubus. It's like sitting on me. Um, but I wrote a first uh, first few drafts and. Um, I had finished, to my satisfaction, both Matrix and The Vaster Wilds, and I just sort of, like, in, in the winter of um, 2019, probably de December, right before the break, I just sort of thrust all three books at my agent and an editor and ran away. Um, and I said, here you go. 
knowing that the third one is nowhere near close to done, but I wanted to give them an idea of what the, the larger project is. I, I wanted each book to stand alone. Each book is its, uh, its own work. Um, but, and they're all stylistically very, very different. Um, it format, the form is different, the time is different, everything is different. But they're all talking about um, the themes that I feel very, very urgent about. Um, the way that religion has perverted our understanding and love of the natural world, for instance. The way that um, structures, uh, social structures, uh, especially confine women, um, right? The way that um, we, I guess we've lost our, our interpretation, our correct interpretation of what Genesis actually means, uh, which instead of dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, we have been dominating. Um, and, and we've spread that idea of domination through all social systems and everything. So all this to say, it's really ambitious. I may not finish the third one ever, um, in which case it'll be a diptych. There you go. Uh, but no matter what, I you know, might as well shoot for it, right? Uh, who knows? We have one life to live, so we, we should be as ambitious as possible. And screw those people who don't like it. Um, oh, look, it's perfect. Um, I can uh, take questions if you want. Oh. <laughs> So the question, I, I forgot to ask the, the question for the podcast, which I'm doing now again, is um, I'm a writer. My sister is a two-time Olympian and now Iron Man. Um, what did my parents do? And nobody knows about my brother, who's kind of amazing, um, right? So he's, he's a doctor, uh, and he got, well, he got his MD and MBA at the same time. And so he starts up medical businesses and sells them. But I don't actually know what he does. Right? I, like, I have no idea. Um, he could be a billionaire. I have no idea, right? Um, so, um, so my parents, I heard lovely people, very lovely. Uh, they subscribe to benign neglect, um, which I believe in as a parent myself. Yeah, I think benign neglect is the best way to raise your children. Um, I so uh, I was raised in Cooperstown, New York, a tiny little village, very very safe. Uh, and in the summer, for instance. Uh, my mom would just be like, eat your food whenever you want. You know, I'm not going to serve you anything except for dinner. You have to be here for dinner. But go wander, like go swim. I don't care. Um, so we would just, I would, I would go to the tree in the backyard and just read all day, right? Because I'm a nerd. My sister would just disappear. We have no idea where she went. Like she like went to the underworld. I have no idea. My brother, I don't know, like threw fireworks at people. Like that's something he would do. So, so, but they're really okay. So it was really when um, we started differentiating and we started uh, finding our passions that they became really, really good parents. And by saying what I mean by that is they put zero pressure on us to do anything. So in college, my sister said, "I really like swimming." She was an all-American swimmer. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at running. Uh, I think I want to be a triathlete. And they're like, great, you go for it. We will support you, right? When inside, they were probably thinking, this is insane, right? Like, she's going to hurt herself, right? She's not going to make it. She's going to be disappointed. Same thing with my being a writer. After college, I, um, I was in Philadelphia because that's where my then boyfriend, now husband, had a job. And I decided to go back and get my mixology degree to be a bartender. 
after getting like a very expensive education. And my parents said, great, right? We'll pay for it. Um, go for it. Be a bartender so you can write. That's fine. So it's really just, you know, not forcing your children to do your vision of the world, I think, and, and letting them find their own way, which is really hard to do, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm having a really hard time doing that with my children. So, yeah. Yeah. So the question is about Gainesville and um, how how I started uh, writing about Gainesville. Uh, to be, I've been there for 17 years, which is longer than I've ever lived anywhere else in my life, including Cooperstown, because I, I took off. Um, and so it's now home. Uh, and it's home in ways that I uh, resist still. <laughs> I, you know, I'm from I'm from the Northeast, and I've lived everywhere, right? And so it's it's uh, it was really hard for me to swallow being a Floridian, just because Florida unfairly has become the butt of every single joke, or like the dangling dong of every single joke. Um, so, and and I mean, for some in some ways we deserve it. In some ways, it's really deeply unfair, right? Because of the Sunshine Laws and publishing. Um, all of those horrible things that people do, which everybody does everywhere, but only here does it make the news. Um, so, you know, Gainesville is phenomenal. I've, I've learned to really love it. It's a, it's a punk town, um, and it runs with um, a lot of community fervor and uh, a lot of uh, um, almost utopian togetherness, right, a community feeling. And um, it took me a while to find my people, but I did find them. Yeah, it's good. It's also way cheaper than here, and right. And if you're going to be an artist, you might as well live in a cheap place, right? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Um, so I, I really, I really love it, uh, and I think I'm stuck there forever. So, no, um, no. So it's never fun to feel caged, right? And and um, there are things about Florida that drive me bats um, and you know the politics are you know every single day you wake up and you want to cry um, but there are also things about Florida that I love so profoundly like the the nature right you go into Payne's Prairie which is an actual prairie it's so wonderful right and you're just deeply in love with with something if you are an artist or a writer it is so oh good it's so it's so important um, to not feel comfortable Right, we have to feel um, a little bit off, a little bit um, uncomfortable, a little bit um, confused sometimes, or ambivalent. Right, ambivalence isn't um, ambivalence isn't wishy-washiness. Ambivalence is strong feeling in multiple directions. Being from Cooperstown, have I ever thought about taking on baseball? I think Don DeLillo did it, like to end all baseball novels. So, I, who could ever walk in Don DeLillo's shoes? Why would I want to? So, being from Cooperstown too. Um, baseball was uh, horrible. Um, I grew up a block and a half from the Baseball Hall of Fame. So every time that there, someone was inducted, um, we would have, like, say, Phillies, because they were the worst. Uh, the Phillies fans would camp on my lawn. They would, like, poop in my woods. Um, it was so bad. I was so angry. And, you know, the only thing in Cooperstown is baseball in the summer. So I had to have a job one summer in a um, minor league baseball cap uh, store. So at one point, I could list every single minor league team in the country. Who cares? <laughs> like it's, I can size every man's head in here. 
um, because of the fitted caps. Um, it was fine. Um, but the winter is when it really blooms and, and shines. It's a really amazing place then. The question is about revision, re revising, or process. Basically, it's a process question, right? And I have to say before I even jump into this that my process is... I would not recommend it to anyone uh, because process is so individual, right? And it, 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 it so depends on who you are as a person. I am, I, as a person, have OCD like pretty badly. Um, it's just something I've struggled with my entire life. And so I found a process that actually works with my OCD. So if I were to write on a computer, it would be too perfect. It would be too much like printed text. So I have to do everything longhand until the very, very end. Um, so... Um, the beautiful thing about this is that I can't read my own handwriting, right, uh, at all. It's really, really terrible. So it doesn't matter for me for the first few drafts. Um, I give myself a specific amount of time, um, and after I've done some research for the historical stuff, uh, and I will write a quick draft. It'll be maybe a month. It's every single day. It's, you know, eight hours a day. Um, I don't know what, I do know what I've read, but it's sort of building amorphously because I'm not rereading it. It's, it's building into something where I can sort of understand the what the form, the um, the characters, the way that they interact, even scenes, right? They're, they're starting to come to the fore, but it doesn't matter because I'll never reread it. It doesn't matter. I put that to the side. And um, if I need to do more research, I do more research. Then I write another one about the same amount of time, maybe a little bit longer, where I, so I already know my way into the text a little bit. And I'm, I'm starting, and I'm doing something different, right? I'm, I'm trying something different to come close to the platonic ideal that I'm, I'm building. So I do this as many times as I need. Uh, because I think for someone like me, if I were to write traditionally, like, and be able to read my own handwriting, um, I would just do that paragraph for three months and never move on. So this way, it's more like a three-dimensional printer, right? I'm printing and printing and printing. And fine, so, and so the fourth draft of this one, I was so frustrated with the first three that I, <laughs> this is so dumb, but I decided, because I wasn't going to read it, right? It doesn't matter, um, that I was going to write it all in iams um, because I was reading a lot of Shakespeare in order to get the, the Elizabethan flavor and language. And I was like, why not, right? Also, an iam is the, the way that we walk and run through the world, right? It's a sort of like the walking, running way and, and the heartbeat way of being in the world. So I did that. It was very short. I, I gave myself one week to do that. But I wrote like what I knew about the book so far and then put it to the side. So the way I get from draft to draft is really not caring about the initial drafts. Um, making them cheap, fast, uh, so bad, intentionally bad. Because if I were to go for good in the beginning, I, I couldn't finish a draft. The other thing that I do is I have multiple drafts, uh, multiple projects happening all at the same time. And so when I get up in the morning, like I, I have this contract with my husband, which is amazing, which means that I've never gotten up with my kids other than when they were physically attached to me. Um, so he gets them fed. He takes them to school. Like I don't see people in the morning. Um, I get up. I go straight to work. And I go to the thing that is so I'm so passionate about, right? The thing that my dreams have told me about in the night, the things that um, I've somehow figured out uh, when I wasn't even writing. So this is the way to get through, for me, um, the, the ideas and into the final stages. And then when you're in the final stages, you've already written the story many times. So it's like, I don't know about you, too. Like when If something were to happen to me, if I were to almost get hit by a car crossing the street, 
I would not be able to tell that story straight out, right? Because I'd be like, and, and then there was dog, and like, right? I, like it'd be an amorphous amoeba, and it was just these splattering on the floor. But if I had told that story 10 times, I could tell a really good story, right? So it's really just like, by the end, you're really just remembering a story. You're telling a story that you remember. Um, and then you can just focus on the things that really matter to me, which are the words, right? The, the beauty, the language, uh, the rhythm, the music. Uh, and all of the rest has already been decided. So this is my process. It doesn't have to be yours. Um, we all figure out our own way through the world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Do I have a way to celebrate the end of a book? By end, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, no, I don't have any. I, so the first person who reads it is my husband. Um, no, I, I'm generally really like nervous and, and sad and sick to my stomach, to be honest, right? Because, well, also, a book doesn't ever end, right? You just give up on it. Um, and you put it in the world, right? It's never, I mean, I'm sure if I were to do The Monsters of Templeton again, I would do it completely differently. It was my first book. Um, you know, who knows? Um, I, I don't celebrate. Uh, because there's a really long road ahead, uh, right? A lot of editing. And as soon as, okay, so here's the deal. As soon as art, which is the daily process, right? It's the, it's the struggles, the figuring things out. It's the, um, the, the, the building the boat as you're sailing the boat, right? That's the art. And then a finished book is a product. And it goes into the commercial realm. And it feels like that... It seems like it should be the goal, but that's not the goal, right? That's what enables the next art to, to happen. And so I don't necessarily see the product as a thing to celebrate because that's inviting commerce in, right? And that, that, that really poisons everything, right? Um, so it's, it's really, it's a mixed blessing. I'm very happy that my books are in the world because it's allowed me to, to write other books. But it's really, you know, the work at hand that matters. It's, it's the stuff that you're struggling through that's the joy. How do you know if the ending is a good ending and uh, you know that it'll satisfy the people? But yeah, um, it will never satisfy everyone, right? I mean, that's like, you know, you look on Goodreads and Middlemarch has like a 3.5, which is so stupid, right? <laughs> You're like, oh my God, what's happening? Um, um, but, so don't look on Goodreads. Um, but the, but the, the truth is, uh, so I, I, I have a philo whole philosophy about endings. I think that the ending of a short story needs to be like a window opening into the room that you didn't even know was there, right? It's been there all along and it brings light in, um, and air in, but it's, it's sort of a, a thing that's, that's changing this short story radically in a very minor way. Um, a novel is more symphonic, right? And if you think about a symphony, um, there it's always ending with, dun, 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 right? Like it really tells you when it ends, and so it's all about the crescendo. It's all about sort of the build up to that moment um, and how it reflects back into the book, even into the beginning of the book. I think um, as long as the ending is sort of looking back, I think that that. Um, that is probably going to be a satisfying ending. This is not a satisfying answer because the truth is nobody knows, right? There's no answer to this question. It's just a lot of guesses. Yeah, yeah. So this is a story about um, narrating audiobooks. Uh, you can actually buy audiobooks through 
books and books, uh, believe it or not. This is kind of amazing. Go on the website. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is incredible, right? It's better giving your money to Mitchell than to anyone else. Um, oh, bless you. So they've only ever allowed me to do one audiobook, right? Uh, and I didn't realize why until I got there. And it's so hard. Um, it's like the reason why actors do it is because it's so hard. Um, and it took me twice as long because this is a terrible story. But the first four days, the, the engineer in the other room was coughing. And they didn't pick it up until um, my, my producer in New York started listening to it. And she's like, oh, no. And then, then halfway through, she also found that I, my stomach was rumbling because I'm always hungry. Um, and so, like, I had to like press a pillow to my stomach to narrate my own audiobook. And uh, so now, you know, unless it's really, really personal, I'm never doing that again. It's terrible. Um, but generally, you work with a producer who will tell you slow down usually and redo the fun, and you're just redoing and redoing and redoing all over, over and over and over again. Yeah. So the question is um, the difference between basically writing a novel and a short story and having the freedom of the novel versus the, the constraints of the short story. Um, so it, it, it all depends on your, I think, your philosophy about them. So um, the novel is a loose baggy monster, as Henry James said, right? You can put anything. I just reread Moby Dick like a month ago. Oh, my God, right? Like, what an amazing, weird book. Um, everything is in it. It gives you permission to do anything you want to do in a novel. You can do it. You can do it. Herman Melville already did. Um, so, but, so it's true, right? You do have less constraint. But I think I don't write a short story until it's taken my life over, right? So it's, it, usually they sit back here for a while, and then they become the only thing. Um, and by, by that time, the constraint becomes um, the architecture. And so what you're, you're doing with a novel or a short story, it's the same. You're, the sentence is a fractal of the whole, um, especially, right? Uh, and the paragraph is also a fractal of the whole. So you're trying to write a sentence in both that is reflecting the entirety of, of what the, the thing that you're doing. So with a short story, because it's smaller, the sentence um, has to sort of correspond to the architecture and the idea of the story itself. The same thing with a novel. Um, so for me, it's really like when I struggle with the language, it's that I can't find the language for the story I want to tell. But as soon as I get that rhythm, I can tell the whole thing, right? But it's really just trying. Yeah, trying and failing, 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 failing. Failure is good. I say this to my children. Everything but academic failure is really good. Right? Don't do that. Um, but right, it's the way that we learn. It's the way that we grow. It's the way that we, we figure out what we can't do. And if you're Cormac McCarthy, like you never write another living woman again, right? <laughs> but he made this incredible, like, oeuvre of like, um, masculinity and critiquing masculinity because he can't write living women. A lot of dead ones, like a lot of necrophilia in those books, but, but not a lot of living ones. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. This is a wonderful question from our architect friend about how the feelings change about the work at hand over the course of, of writing the books or the, the stories. And, and in truth, um, it wasn't until I actually reframed my attitude and uh, toward my own work that I was able to, to accept it in all forms. But um, before I had my oldest son, 
I, I told myself and I realized that my work is a child of mine, right? It is my child. Uh, and it's my first child and I have three of them and I would never, you know, starve one child to feed another. So it has equal importance to my actual living children. So therefore, when it is annoying to me, when it is yelling at me, when it sort of like kicks me in the shins, I still love it the way that I love my own children when they do these things. Right. And so and, you know, it's true. Babies are way cuter than 15 year olds, um, which I have right now. Um but I still love that 15-year-old, you know? He's so wonderful in his own way, when he, even when he doesn't talk to me, right? So it's, re it's really just thinking of it as this thing to be protected and to be loved, even if it's frustrating and even if it doesn't come as close to the platonic ideal as you would want it to. Um, and it's just a paradigm shift, to be honest. And as soon as that happens, I let go of any preconceived ideas, right? If, if, if the book comes into the world and nobody reads it, I'll be sad, but I'll love it. It happened for Arcadia already, so I know how to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I love Arcadia, but nobody else read it. <laughs> you, you four are the only ones. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a piece of art or literature that I return to time and time and again on a regular basis? So many, right? The beautiful thing about being a writer is that you are a reader first, right? And you are an art enjoyer first. So just the things coming to mind. I do reread Middlemarch every single year, right? It is the thing that made me into a writer. It's the, it's the, it's the most capacious wisdom that I know of uh, and something that I would love to have in my own work. Um, recently, I... Um, I've been in a weird, like, Hilma Afknips, um phase and, like, a Rothko phase and a, uh, oh, my gosh, a Martha Graham and Louise Bourgeois phase. And for some reason, these two are sort of talking to each other, right? Because, right, They're sort of like the body and the, I don't even know, the maternal instinct, which is thwarted in one and sort of loved in the other. So, um let me see. Uh, I reread um, Dante's Inferno all the time because I love that it's a work of vengeance and he puts all of his enemies in hell. I think it's really funny. It's a very like if I have to laugh, I go I go back to Dante. Um, let me see. Uh, Emily Dickinson is the, the person who actually made me into a writer at 12 years old. My friend gave me Emily Dickinson's work. And it's so deceptively simple that a dumb 12 year old thinks that she could probably write um, poems like this. And so I tried really hard um, and they were not good, but it's, it was a, an entryway into understanding um, a genius, right? Emily Dickinson's profound genius. Um, again, you know, there's so many. Um, when I'm really like digging the writing, I'm like really into it. I'll put on, uh, say, Arvo Pertz. Um, he's a, where is he from? Estonian. Uh, composer, he's really amazing. Or even, you know, if I want a little bit of uplift, uh, Siguros, which I've listened to on repeat for like 15 years at this point. They're Icelandic, and they have this um, this language that they actually made up. It's not actually Icelandic. They, I think, they call it angel tongue, and they just sort of sing in feathery voices, and it's really kind of amazing to write to. So there's a lot. There's a lot. But art is is what fills the well, right? Um, and experiencing art is the way that we remember that we're human. And that's why AI will never succeed. Uh, because you're, I mean, yeah. All right. Oh, that's a good point to end. Thank you. Thank you.